Hiring can be a challenge, but there's one place you can go where hiring is fast and easy. That place is ZipRecruiter, where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Try it for free now at ZipRecruiter.com real. Today's show is also sponsored by Rothy's. Rothy's is making stylish shoes for women and girls out of recycled plastic water bottles. Get your new favorite flats by going to Rothy's.com real. Hey guys, welcome to the Real Life Podcast, where we talk about exactly that every single week, real life, which means some episodes might be about a fight we just had, some episodes might be about potty training since we have two toddlers, and some might be about eschatological realism because I love thinking and talking about deep theological things, and maybe we'll talk about all three of those in one episode. But we hope the show feels like hanging out in our living room with us, drinking a cup of coffee as we discuss faith and family and culture and Jesus. Me and my lovely wife, Alyssa, are your hosts, and don't hesitate to hit us up or reach out on social media to say hi or comment on this week's episode. Enjoy. Hey guys, Jeff here. Exciting episode this week. Uh, I thought for the next two weeks, I would actually read just two chapters, uh, one each week, from To Hell With The Hustle. The book's been out for a couple months now, and it's been so fun to see the momentum you guys have given it, the response you guys have given it, and it's just been such a blast. So to celebrate a little, I thought I would put two chapters here over the next two weeks. Hopefully they encourage you, and even if you've already read it, there is a little couple bonus snippets in the audiobook, um, and just hearing it in the audio I know is sometimes different. So hope it's an encouragement to you guys. Love you. Chapter 6, The Desert Gift. There have only been a few times in my life when I felt truly duped by God, by society, by culture, and even by my expectations of what I thought something or someone should be like. Where I felt left out in the cold and thought, this isn't supposed to be happening, not like this. One of those moments was when we lost our baby girl, Ellie Grace, in 2017. Six weeks prior, Alyssa had jumped on the bed with positive pregnancy tests, saying, baby number three, a family of five we would be, and we could officially now fill an entire basketball team. And then I remember when Alyssa later painfully said, I think we lost her. Now I knew miscarriage was tough when our friends who have walked through it had talked about it. I could see it was devastating, but maybe because either they didn't want to dive too much into the pain or they wanted to protect us from it, a story of miscarriage never was more than a few sentences and a sad moment. But it's not just sad, it's traumatic. Horrifying, bloody, devastating, surreal. A life miraculously woven and conceived in the very heart of God, resting in the womb, dies inside another person. You carry that life, and then you carry death. I felt so shocked by it all, I remember thinking, I have no context for this. I have no context for death. Neither Alyssa nor I had ever lost a family member or a close friend. Death had never stared us in the face and breathed on us until that moment. And there's no playbook, especially with two toddlers in the house who still need to be fed, who still need their butts wiped, who still need baths, and your wife is devastated, passing a dream that no longer holds a heartbeat, in horrible pain emotionally, but no one tells you the physical toll it also has on a woman's body, that the body hates death and convulses and revolts to get rid of it. You almost don't even feel like you have time to process the loss because a three-year-old and a one-year-old have needs right now. And that's when the curse came close. 
put its arm around us, and made us intimate friends. And I remember thinking, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Obscurity. We are now two years removed from that moment in our story, and if you follow us online or watch our videos, you had no idea we walked through that pain when it happened. And that had nothing to do with us not being honest or authentic. It was about obscurity, the gift and beauty and desperate need of the desert, of the place of wandering, alone, the place where God does his best work, where he meets you most intimately, where he isn't at fault for the curse, but where he walks with you through it. Alyssa and I intentionally shared this traumatic experience with only a few close friends and family members. One of the worst and most insidious parts of our overconnected society is we give no margin for Jesus to deal with us in the darkness. We can't hear him in our trauma or problems or hurt or pain because we let everyone else speak into it first. We blog about it and we share about it on Facebook. I know not everyone does this, but a lot of us do. And it's something we have to wrestle with in our overconnected society. But what if your predisposition isn't to share things online? What if it's to be more private and personal? I don't think that makes anyone automatically more obscure. See, the dictionary defines obscurity as, quote, the state of being unknown, inconspicuous, or unimportant. And here's the catch. According to the way of Jesus, that is not a curse. In fact, sometimes we should choose it. So then, true obscurity is walking through wastelands that are dry, quiet, not applauded, and isolating with Jesus, whatever those wastelands may be. But I know why most of us have a knee-jerk reaction to overshare or overconnect online. The same reason some of us share our political opinions on Facebook as if that's somehow going to be helpful to another person. I mean, if the election of 2016 showed anything, it's that the internet only polarizes and demonizes these conversations in general. Nuance is usually found over a cup of coffee, not by typing it on your iPhone. It's quick and gives us the feedback we want. It's cheap consolation. But it's not doing the hard work of obscurity, where we need to sit in it, believing it's part of the blessing, not the curse. Because there's only one way to heal and find wholeness, and it can't be found online, at least not in its fullness. Sharing trauma or even good things with the internet world, while we're in the middle of it, short circuits the entire process. It crosses the wires and creates sparks, loud sparks, noise, adoration, comments like, we love you, we're cheering for you, or oh, I'm so sorry. But sparks usually mean a bad connection. What if God wants to speak to us alone? Do we trust he has what it takes? Now, I'm not saying to walk through hardship and trauma alone. Please hear me say that. You need your support system and community. In fact, I remember how much our close friends and family rallied with us during that miscarriage. Meals, flowers, the sweetest cards, prayers written out over text, help with our kids. I'm more concerned about the healing part specifically. See, sometimes we share too quickly with the world, and I mean the internet, the fringe friends, and the public record, before we have truly processed, dealt with it, or healed. The minute we do that, the decibel level becomes too loud, and we no longer can hear Jesus. He gets drowned out. But he's the place of true wholeness and restoration. And so in a painful but true way, we need obscurity. We need to simply sit with Jesus without pithy prayers. We need to ask for his help and know that he sees us. And while healing won't come overnight, we know we aren't going through this alone. Beloved, 
We can look to Jesus as the ultimate example of someone who sought out obscurity during his time on earth. He was constantly saying, stop, I don't want to be known. Not yet. He was being pushed to be more public, pushed to reveal more, and then he'd heal people and then say, don't tell anyone, it's not my time. While the Gospel of Matthew starts with Jesus' baptism, temptation in the desert, and good news, it shows us a few peculiar things. First, God in flesh did not start with some grand political speech about hope and change or a big announcement of, this is what I'm going to do. I'm here to save everyone. Follow me. No, he started the whole thing with getting wet. The one person who didn't need to be baptized got baptized. Jesus identified with us. He was basically saying, I'm not just doing this for you, but I'm doing this with you, as one of you. I didn't have to, but I want to. As he came up from the water, hair wet, water dripping down his clothes, a booming voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. My beloved, the apple of Yahweh's eye, full blessing and adoration and affirmation resting on him as Messiah. Jesus had done nothing Messiah-like yet. No healings, no miracles, no cross. Yet he was already the beloved. And as author Jonathan Martin put it this way, quote, when God called Jesus his beloved, Jesus did something truly remarkable. He believed him. See, Jesus was the beloved, not because of anything he'd done yet, but because of who he was loved by. He was an object of affection, the beloved. With that power and belief and declaration, you'd think he could instantly march right into the city and start shaking things up. So it had to be strange to everyone who witnessed such a display of power and mystery that Jesus, while still sopping wet, turned his back on everyone and just started walking towards the dry, desolate desert. The Greek word for desert or wilderness in that passage at the beginning of Matthew 4 is eremos, which can also be translated as the desolate place, the solitary place, or the lonely place. Jesus willingly walked into the lonely place. Why? Because while he knew he was the beloved, obscurity is where it sinks down deep into the bones. It's where it's seared into us permanently, if we will let it. Do we believe the Spirit can invite us there too? I imagine Jesus on his way to the Eremos and pausing for a minute to turn around. And he looks at us, motions with his hand to come, with a smile on his face. He's asking us to come with him to the middle of the desert. The desert is where the red-hot iron of belovedness sears into our soul. It gets pushed from the surface to the depths. It gets put in a place where nothing can snatch it from us. Author John Mark Comer makes the observation against a very common misconception that the desert actually wasn't a place of weakening for Jesus. Too often, we tend to see that story as one where Jesus goes to the desert and gets weaker and weaker, and the devil preys on that weakness by tempting him in the middle of it. But this only reveals how much we hate and fear the desert. We automatically think going to a lonely, desolate place will be draining and must mean weakness. Instead, the 40 days in the desolate place were like that part on any fighting video game when your character is alone and your power meter begins to recharge. He was branding and massaging and marinating the power deep into himself through the lonely place. And only then, at the end of that time that the spirit led him to, was he more than ready to face the evil one. And if Jesus himself needed that order and process, how much more do we? Yet we want to run right into the job, 
to the crowd, to the noise, without recharging first. But only then, after the desert, the Gospel of Matthew says, Jesus began his ministry. He ran around from town to town saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. This was why he came. So Matthew set up a narrative where Jesus was baptized, then went into the desert, and then began his ministry. And that order is desperately important because not many of us actually try to do the same thing. Again, number one, identity and baptism. Number two, solitary place in the desert. And number three, what we are created for, kingdom work. Switch any of those around or skip a step and it all crashes and burns. If Jesus just went from desert to ministry and skipped his baptism, we wouldn't have the power for what it would take to survive the desert or the obscurity. Have you ever noticed that all three of Jesus' temptations were temptations of identity? Satan knows if he gets us to believe a lie about who we are and what that means, he wins. It's why he starts the temptation with, if you are the son of God, then do this. But that's a lie in and of itself. You don't prove childhood. You don't prove your last name. You just have it. Belovedness is a right and a gift, not something to clutch and grasp for. You don't have to hold on tight. You do have to do that with a possession you own. But a right, a last name, you can open your hands freely and your identity isn't going anywhere. Knowing your belovedness is the only way you can make it in the desert. If Jesus had no baptism and only desert, who knows what would have happened. With every temptation when he resisted, that belovedness sunk a tiny bit deeper into his core. But imagine if Jesus had the baptism but no desert. If he went straight from his baptism to telling the crowds right there at the Jordan that the kingdom of heaven was close and at hand, then the belovedness would have been drowned out. See, because God is always speaking to us, but so is the world, and the world is usually louder. So without the gift of obscurity, the blessing of the desert, the space of silence where we can hear the whisper over and over again, where it gets drilled deep into our being, then the job and the ministry will drown it out their voices will replace God's. But if you have baptism and desert or the obscurity and then ministry, then you're ready for exactly what God has for you. You've heard you're the beloved. It's been seared into your soul and now you bleed wholeness out to others as you walk in your daily life. Hey guys, I want to take a quick break to talk about one of the sponsors, and that is ZipRecruiter. You guys know we love ZipRecruiter. They are awesome, and it's just the absolute best way when you want to hire anyone to help you out on your team. It's incredible. Absolutely recommend it. Now, one fun story uh, is Codable co-founder Gretchen Hebner experienced the same thing, how challenge how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a new game artist to grow with her educational tech company. But then she switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference, and you can too by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash real. It's cool because it doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you, which I love. And by using ZipRecruiter's screening questions to filter the candidates, even someone like Gretchen found it easier to focus on the best one than find the right one. Um, in fact, after posting her job on ZipRecruiter, she said she was honestly surprised she found qualified applicants so quickly and she hired someone in less than two weeks. So with results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. So you guys, see why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at this web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash real. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash real, R-E-A-L. Be boring.
A hundred years ago, people might have thought if their crops weren't growing well, they were cursed, or if their marriage fell apart, or if a huge sickness hit them. But for our generation, our curse is much different. It's having to be ordinary. And so we run headlong from where richness and depth are actually hiding. I don't know another generation so utterly terrified of the things that can actually take us there. Obscurity, desolation, and ordinariness. But what if being obscure, to actually welcome it and chase it on some level, gives us the thing we are looking for everywhere else? Take the phrase, living your best life. It's often accompanied with images of insane ambition and life manipulation and an idolatry of productivity. It's all about building a seven-figure business or trying this new way to hack sleep and morning energy levels and being obsessed with goal setting and never saying no to your own dreams and passions. It's mainly about being noticed. I've personally stopped using that phrase entirely, along with all the other cousins of it, like be more productive, be the best you, scale your influence, chase your dreams, and things like that. I've exchanged it for something that's been a lot more life-giving. And it's pretty simple. My new life mantra is be boring. Seriously, I have it written as a reminder right next to my computer. Because what our culture defines as boring or mediocre or wasteful squandering of talent, the scriptures and the way of Jesus define as quiet, beautiful, and faithful. So I'm going to keep chasing boring because that's the thing that's actually allowing me to live fully. It feels anchored, slow, not anxious, full of joy, and steady, with a peace about it that I think only comes from the quietness of it. So I'll just be over here saying no thanks to the internet onslaught of thought leaders telling me to do more and be more and achieve more. Nah, bro, I'm good. I don't want to life hack anything and I don't want to cheat the work of life. You can find me chasing a boring marriage and a boring family and a boring work life and a boring schedule and loving it. Because the thing most of us are chasing in all that insane life hacking culture, a life of meaning and depth and richness, might be found in the boring instead. And here's why I've had to grapple with this the most. When thinking about our Christian culture and its obsession with the doing big things for God, what if God doesn't want me to do big things for him, like at all? What if he just wants me to talk to him and know him and live an ordinary life where I love him and my neighbors well? Alyssa and I have been doing this YouTube, social media, online thing as a full-time job now for six years. But I've come to the conclusion that God doesn't care about it as much as he cares about other stuff. I imagine one day God asking me questions about this life I was given and how I lived it. Hey, Jeff, you know that online thing I gave you and Alyssa? Did you steward it well? Okay, cool. Let's move on. How about, hey, Jeff, you know that neighbor you've lived next to for eight years? What's his name? Or, Jeff, you've been going to that coffee shop to work for a few times a week for the past few years. Have you ever asked the barista her story? Or, Jeff, how come every time I tried to meet with you or talk to you, you were more excited to be on your phone or too busy with your schedule or doing and not being? See, boring is holy. Obscure is holy. And mundane is holy. Because boring is not a sign of the curse, but actually a sign of intimacy. How do you judge the closeness of a friendship to someone? Why do you consider your spouse or your best friend or someone in your family the person you are closest to? Probably because there's a level at which you know each other that just can't be replicated or cheated or short-circuited. It happens slowly and methodically over time. You build one memory and one moment upon another, over years and then over decades. If you put me and a stranger in a room, I'd have to be, quote, on, and I'd love getting to know that person. But it's work because I don't know them. But with Alyssa, 
We can sit there next to each other and not speak sometimes for hours, but that's because our intimacy is so deep. The comfort has been built over years. We actually know each other. I mean, we know each other. And to know and to be known is what we are all chasing after most of the time anyway. The longer we get to know someone and the deeper intimacy goes, the more boring it actually gets. When I first started dating Alyssa, it was the most insanely exhilarating time of my life. I couldn't stop thinking about her, and honestly, there was this physical buzz in my body over her. I hummed internally with the magic of puppy love. And now, not so much. But guess what? I love her so much more ferociously and deeply and intimately now than ever before. My love for her as a teenager, we were 19 when we met, doesn't hold a candle to my intimacy and love for her at 30. Boring and ordinary are signs of intimacy. So I wonder if in our dislike of those things, we actually are saying no to intimacy too. Shallowness is essentially the king of the day as long as we uphold fast, spectacular, and incredible moments as the markers of a true life not boring, mundane, faithful love and presence. Take a look again at Mr. Rogers. A dumb and annoying cultural debate, in my opinion, arose towards the end of his life. People critiqued him for creating a snowflake generation. Essentially, because Mr. Rogers spent decades telling children they were special and unique, he was to blame for everything wrong in the millennial generation. Spoiler alert, that's not what Mr. Rogers meant by special and unique, by the way, and not what most people who were profoundly affected by him thought he meant either. The criticism reached its peak steam in the early 2000s. And so when he was invited to give the commencement speech at Marquette University in 2001, he made sure to be as clear as possible about what he meant. He said, quote, you don't ever have to do anything sensational in order to love or to be loved. The real drama of life, that which matters most, is rarely center stage or in the spotlight. In fact, it has nothing to do with IQs and honors and the fancy outsides of life. I love that. You don't have to do anything sensational to be loved or to love. You don't have to be spectacular to live a full and flourishing existence. The goal of life is not to be dramatic, noticed, striking, eye-catching, breathtaking, glorious, remarkable, or fantastic. God already notices you. His eye is caught by you. You take his breath away and you are full of his glory. Hey guys, I want to take another break to talk about one of this week's sponsors, and this is Rothy's. Rothy's has been a new sponsor in 2020, but we absolutely love them. Kinsley wears her Rothy shoes all the time. They're so easy, and I love everything going on behind the company. Now, if you haven't heard about this company, what they do is they basically make stylish shoes for women and girls out of recycled plastic water bottles. They're incredible, and they're crazy comfortable, and best part, especially for kids, fully machine washable. Um, and so they've quickly grown to be loved. Uh, and this absolute gotta have brand. They're really, really awesome. And we absolutely love them. Now, again, if you don't know, they're the perfect everyday shoes for life on the go. They're stylish, they're comfortable. They go with everything. And on top of that, they come in an ever-changing array of colors, prints, patterns, and they're available in different styles. It's awesome. And they launch new colors all the time. Kinsley has these really cool ones that kind of pop with a really fun pop of color. And they always come with free shipping and free returns and exchanges, which is really, really awesome. Now, also a couple things on the sustainability. Um, if you don't know, they're made from repurposed plastic water bottles, which you wouldn't know that by looking at them. And in fact, they've diverted over 35 million water bottles from landfills already, which is awesome. And they're fully machine washable. So every time you need a refresh, you can just toss them in the washing machine. It's like you get a fresh pair all the time. So check out all the amazing styles 
available right now at rothys.com slash real. So go to rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash real to get your new favorite flats, their comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. rothys.com slash real. God never commands us to chase those things, but he does command us to love him and love our neighbor. Whenever I've talked about this with others, I've received one consistent pushback. Ordinariness dampens or lessens the power of God, they say. But Jesus wasn't a special case. Almost every major figure we know of in scriptures had a significant season of obscurity. By our standards, in fact, many of them look like they actually wasted their lives. Moses was the very towering figure in the Old Testament, the most major figure in the Jewish faith, the arbiter and keeper of the Torah and the covenant made at Sinai. But everything we know Moses for and everything we celebrate about him, he seemed to barely even sneak into his life right at the last minute. His life seemed wasted and weird by all accounts. Raised in Pharaoh's household with power and privilege. Then he killed a man. Yes, murdered someone. Then he went out to the wilderness and took care of sheep for four decades. Imagine if that was your life. No big things for God. No seven-figure business by the time you're 30. No moving across the world to travel through Europe and post it on Instagram about how incredible your life is at age 20. Nope. One place, four decades, where no one cared about or knew him, doing nothing special, taking care of sheep every day. Or how about Abraham, the very father of the Jewish faith and an enormous figure in the Torah? Everything hinged on him and the promise. He seemingly had wealth and privilege and was part of a multi-generational line under his father. But he heard from this strange God, different from his fathers, who called him to an unknown place, and he did something crazy. He said yes. And then God said, because of your faith and trust, I'm going to make an entire nation out of you. Even though you think you can't have kids, I'm going to put the world back together through you and your family, and your descendants will be like the grains of the sand. And so he lived in this promise, in radical faith and obedience, away from everything he once knew, very much in obscurity. And at the very end of his life, he had a child named Isaac, because the miracle was so outrageous they couldn't stop laughing. Isaac means laughter. And then what happened? He died, and that's it. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. God gives you a huge promise that he's going to make you into a great nation, bring the blessing and promise and renewal of all things through your line, and you live for decades with nothing happening. Then you have one kid and you die. He didn't get to enjoy the fullness of the promise coming to fruition, but it came true. And because of his willingness to live in obscurity and relatively waste his life under obedience to God, it came true. He lived his life in obedience toward a dream he'd never see or get to take part in or benefit from. Yet he still did it. Or take the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He had a radical experience with the Lord on the road to Damascus. He heard the very voice of Jesus, got knocked off his horse, and went blind, and was told he would be one of the major players for a first century movement that would turn the world upside down. And so what did he do? Did he start preaching, go around telling people how awesome Jesus is? Did he get back on his horse and race to the city square to preach the fiery and bold good news? No. It says he went and spent years in Arabia and then Syria, And it's a time we don't even have much information about. What if God wants us to just love the person two doors down from us consistently for a decade 
And that may be all we do in life that's worth anything, at least by God's standards. What if we actually embrace being unknown, unseen, in the hidden place? Why does everything have to be shared or processed out loud? Now I know what you're thinking. Jeff, God doesn't want us to be ordinary. He is big and huge and miraculous and gives us extraordinary moments. To which I'd say yes and no. Is God big and huge and miraculous? Yes. Does he give a ton of extraordinary moments in our lives? I actually don't think so. Or here's a better way to put it. We shouldn't be seeking out those moments, but instead living our lives in the holiness of the ordinary. And if God wants to get our attention with something big, we can trust he will. Go back to the example of Moses from the Bible. He was wasting his life away in the desert for 40 years with sheep. He was a senior citizen at this point, collecting social security, the point in life where our culture thinks we are essentially done doing anything meaningful. But the only meaningful thing we know of him up until his old age is that he murdered someone of his own race, a brother of his. After, he silently and quietly lived his life for decades in the desert of obscurity. Was he wishing to do big things for God? Was he this rubber band pulled back just waiting to be launched at God's word? No, at least he didn't seem like it. He was hanging out with sheep, minding his business, not chasing after some big thing to make his life meaningful. Instead, he was faithful and obedient, chasing the meaning of the day in front of him. Then, all of a sudden, on a random day, he looked left and saw a bush on fire. Yet, it wasn't consumed by the fire. Hmm, that's strange, he must have thought. Then, the bush started talking. God was calling him to lead his people out of slavery. And Moses wasn't angsty, feeling shame over wasting his life away in an isolated place. Nope. A bush caught fire and started talking to him. God had come looking for him. But even with those miracles, Moses resisted. Because he wasn't seeking recognition or trying to be extraordinary. He was being faithful in the ordinary. And then when God wanted to get his attention, when Moses was old enough to get a senior discount at Denny's, he did something remarkable. So many of us can learn from Moses, and all of these biblical characters for that matter, to be present and faithful to the very day in front of us where we currently are. We want to do something big, and God wants us to be someone who is faithful. What if we just stop trying to do extraordinary things for God? What if we put our heads down, went about our work, and were faithful in it all? If we did our work with excellence, love our friends and neighbors and coworkers, leaned into the Spirit of God every moment of every day, and were perfectly content to do that same routine of ordinariness every day until we die. What if we were fine with that? What if that type of life was a blessing, not a curse? I've had to learn this in my own strange and unique way that wouldn't have even been possible a decade ago. After I graduated from college, I did what many millennials had done. I made a random video and put it on YouTube. There was no purpose or intentionality or reason or plan. My friend and I made a video and then uploaded it to YouTube. We didn't think much past that. Within 24 hours, it had gone insane viral. It's strange that a 4 minute and 32 second video turned my entire life upside down forever. But it did. Some people on the internet thought it was the best thing ever, while others thought it was the worst thing ever. It was a surreal experience to go to a website I read every day for news and information and on the front page, read an article about how I was extremely wrong and leading millions astray by what I said in my video. Now, of course, there were positive responses too, and most people think that those few weeks after the video went viral must have been insanely awesome for me. 
but it was just the opposite. I hated it. There were some of the hardest weeks of my life. I felt like I was in a pressure cooker of praise, critique, and identity crisis all at once. It was a surreal experience to have so many eyes on me in such a short amount of time. I don't think humans were created to be able to sustain that sheer force of attention. Thankfully, because of solid mentors and anchors in my life, Alyssa and I were able to walk through the season gracefully, and some cool opportunities came from it. A few months after the video went viral, I was approached by Thomas Nelson and given an opportunity to write a book, which had been a dream of mine my whole life. But it was one of those dreams I didn't even entertain because I saw no viable path to doing it. Then the opportunity fell into my lap because of a video. And so my first book was published in 2013 and debuted at number three on the New York Times bestseller list and then stayed there for nine weeks. It has since sold hundreds of thousands of copies and been translated into a handful of different languages. But I was 24 and had no context or previous experience. I had no idea that the average book sells maybe 3,000 copies, so I thought what I did was normal. Until my next book came out. And that was when the wrestling started. See, it's surreal to face the reality that my biggest commercial successes were maybe probably behind me. Yet, I was still in my 20s. Growing up, I never thought that my career would peak at 24. Most likely, there will never be a video as successful as that first one, and there will never be a book I write as successful as that first one. Now, what a strange feeling it is to know that I may hopefully write books for the next 60 years and create video content for the next few decades, yet by the world's measurement, my greatest achievement is already behind me. That's when obscurity became really real to me in its own way. Sure, we are still public people in one sense, but what if numbers and views and sales aren't the measure of success in Jesus's economy? What if us being less known and living in that and walking in that and wrestling in that and creating from that will somehow create more meaningful and effective work? I am enormously proud of the book you are listening to right now. It feels more hard-won and researched and crafted than my first one. It took more work, and I feel that, as with any craft, I've gotten incrementally better at the skill of writing. But what do you do when your first book is the one everyone loves and knows you for? I even feel a twinge of embarrassment about my first book because it was literally the first one I ever wrote. Picture your first attempt at anything, painting, car work, sewing. There's usually a level at which it's just not that good, plain and simple. But I also know the world is more complex than that, and I recognize how cool and strange it is that God is using something I feel sometimes awkward about. Maybe that's why people read it. It was a book written by a nobody, and at an age I probably shouldn't have been writing anyway, yet it somehow touched thousands and thousands of people. I guess you could say a crooked stick can still draw a straight line, and that book is a cool reminder of that. The flip side of this is in how I responded to the success. If I'd set up my views or sales or noticeability as the main marker of achievement, I'd be tormented professionally right now. If I wrote books and made videos simply to try to crack the code again, then I'd be chasing my own tail. That's a well of water that never satisfies. Because even if you do crack the code again, it's cheap and hollow and counterfeit. The work itself is the blessing, not the result of the work. Being faithful in the process is what God wants, not how it ends up. So do the work, love the work, and be faithful. No matter the results, or the accolades, or number of eyeballs on it. If there's one thing I've learned pretty fiercely, it's that the work I do isn't what matters. 
The goal of following Jesus isn't to do a bunch of things. It's to become a type of person. And there's a place that forms us and molds us deeply if we are willing to go there, and that's the desert, the wasteland. And that wasteland looks different for everyone, but it's still a wasteland. To us, it was our bedroom six weeks after we found out we had lost our third child. And even typing this right now, I can remember how it felt, how painful it was. But the beautiful thing is, we didn't go out into the desert alone. There was a Jewish rabbi with wet hair walking a few steps ahead of us, who invites us to embrace the formation of obscurity, to not resist it, but welcome it. It's a gift, and it's where he is if we want to meet with him.